Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Uh, joining me on the podcast today is Sam Alberry. Uh, Sam speaks around the world as a preacher and apologist. Uh, he is part of the leadership team at Emmanuel Nashville and the author of multiple books. Some of those are, Is God Anti-Gay? Seven Myths About Singleness? Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? And most recently, what God has to say about our bodies. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and, and look, I forgot to mention uh, in there that uh, you also have started a podcast, I believe, recently. I don't think it's been around too long, but I'd love for you to just tell our listeners about that. Yeah, thank you. That launched in, in August. Um, it's co-hosted between me and Ray Ortland, um, and it's called You're Not Crazy, gospel sanity for young pastors um and it, it's really just a, a podcast trying to commend spiritual health in the local church so aimed at young pastors but really we hope anyone who is um concerned for the for the health of their local church that they would be interested in, in joining that conversation uh we've seen enough bad models of leadership in the last few years with various high profile Kind of scandals and and that kind of thing. We thought it'd be good to to start having conversations about what what is positive leadership, what does a positive church culture look like. So um yeah yeah well, and thanks for that. I've only listened to a few episodes, but I think you're right. I think yes, although aimed at pastors, anyone can benefit uh, from it. I mean the the conversations you both are having are are, are rich and yeah a blessing for sure. So thanks for that. Um, so as I mentioned, your, your new book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves, um, which released through Crossway, I believe, this summer. Um, I'd love to just begin by asking you, I'm always interested in the origins of a book. And so what was it about this topic that moved you to write a book on it? How long had you been kind of ruminating on these ideas about the body and when wanting to write about it? Yeah, it's been a while, actually. I, I actually started working on the book five years ago, um, which is a long time to be thinking it through and, and writing on it. Um, and two things converged that, that convinced me to write it. One was just within the, the pastoral ministry I was involved with in my own local church. Various issues kept coming up that that all had something to do with the body, whether that was body image issues or sexuality, that kind of thing. Um, and then the other thing was just seeing the, the kind of cultural conversations that are going on around us, particularly with the transgender movement. Um, this idea that that our body is not really kind of intrinsically meaningful in any way. Um, it just struck me that a lot, of, a lot of the issues that we're confused about culturally and and often within the church as well, again, all flow out of of our bodies and, and whether our body has any meaning and purpose to it or not. So I figured it would be a good way to, to go upstream of lots of the conversations we're having at the moment and hopefully put in place um, a kind of theological framework that can help us orient ourselves to those kinds of conversations and discussions. Um, our Catholic friends have, I think, been much more attentive to this area than, than we Protestants have over the years. So um, I just the need for a kind of a, a, an accessible biblical introduction to what the Bible says about our bodies, I thought would be worth trying to work on. Yeah, no, it's interesting how, you know, we think of the LGBTQ movement and just other things with transgenderism becoming so prominent. And we think of 
it's interesting how the Lord can use that to sharpen the church. And again, oh, to, for sure. to have a volume like this written, because I mean, again, we're seeing kind of gaps in uh, what, what's available to, to believers. And, and so to, to have, um, yeah, a, a volume like this is, is deeply helpful. And it's just, again, sharpening the way we think about this. No, I think it's um, uh, one of the ways secular culture actually unwittingly serves the church is by showing us where we haven't been teaching much, um, where there is confusion. Um, so I remember hearing a seminary professor once talk about the early church heresies and how they were necessary heresies mm. for the church to really be clear on her understanding of, of Christ and the creeds and all those sorts of things. So I think these culturally confusing moments do, do help us. Mm. I hope have greater clarity. Sometimes it's our own theological chickens coming home to roost areas mm. where we've just not been attentive. Mm. That's so true. I mean, that is to me, it's always been fascinating to study some of the heresies uh, because it does help you just better understand what it is. Uh, that's, that's orthodoxy. Um, yeah. And in this book, I mean, you, you cover a host of issues. I think may possibly when people read the title, they think, okay, this might just be about sex or this might just be kind of, you know, LGBTQ movement. And we'll, we'll get into some of those kind of uh, gender issues. But, but one thing you touch on it kind of early on is, is tattoos <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and kind of how they kind of express identity. Uh, and, you know, as I'm dealing with young people, it does seem like there's a, this growing resurgence of interest in tattoos. And so I'd love you just to touch on that. I know you don't talk in detail about tattoos, but just um, how, uh, you know, they can be attached to expressing identity. I'd love for you to just hit on that briefly. Yeah, it's, I don't have a particularly strong view on Christians and, and getting tattoos, but um, it, it's just been an observation of mine that, you know, when I was a teenager, tattoos were kind of very disreputable. Uh, you had to go to the wrong side of town to get them. And they very much become mainstream, main street as well. Um, and it's almost unusual not to have them. Um, that, that's going to tell us something about our culture, that we're, we're kind of back to painting our bodies in a kind of, mass market kind of way and it, it, if nothing else i think it, it does reflect something of this idea that my body doesn't intrinsically convey anything of my identity i have to paint onto my body what i understand my true identity to be and that's something that we arrive at internally so my you know tattoos become a way of expressing externally something of who we see ourselves to be internally um so i, I just i just think it's a very interesting cultural development Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and as you say in the book, I mean, our bodies are not just accessories, uh, that we don't just have a body. Uh, we are a body and, uh, you know, the connection there um, as well. But I'd love for you to kind of elaborate on that just a little bit as well. Yeah, well, I think it's um, I, th I think this cultural propensity, I mean, sticking with the tattoos for a moment to, to keep, you know, for that to become such a big thing makes me wonder if if it's a reflection of some kind of distance between us and our bodies um, that we have to kind of colonize them and decorate them and, uh, you know, um, sort of furnish them with these things. And I think it is reflecting of that, of that deeper shift we've had in recent years in our own anthropology, our own understanding of how we know who we are. And the focus has very much been that actually it's looking deep within yourself that really shows you who you are and, 
that's the real you that's the real identity your body is incidental to that and that's the sort of thing i think a lot of in a lot of cases not all but in many cases that the kind of focus on getting tattoos is a is an expression of that mm. how else are people going to know who i am and what i'm into um so i think i think there's a there's a wider shifting attitude to the body that that is but one outworking of mm-hmm. yeah very true yeah and, and sam your book it's it's divided into three sections kind of following a creation fall redemption uh, framework and you get the reader to think more deeply about what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made and, and as you move forward you, you know you get into uh, gender and then you, you caution the reader kind of not to say what the bible doesn't say and you give an example that there's, you know, some curriculum uh, that either you stumbled upon or someone told you about that's kind of lists some attributes of men and women, some of them having scripture references, some of them not having scripture references. Um, and so I think it's, it'd be helpful for us to kind of turn this on the, the church a little bit and to, hmm. to think about, you know, what, what are some of the attributes that you think, you know, the church and Christians have perpetuated? that are not explicitly stated in scripture. I know there can be many, and of course this may vary from culture to culture, but I'd love for you just to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I think we've, we've um, part of the cultural confusion about gender identity actually is a reflection of a lack of clarity from the church. I think we've, we've historically followed culture in recent decades more than we've, we've led it. And I think what's often happened is that the church has dealt in cultural stereotypes of what it means to be a man or a woman and sort of lightly Christianize them and then run with them and leaving a lot of people feeling maybe like they're not a proper man or not a proper woman simply because they don't they're not into some particular things that the church sort of assumes you will be into um you know one I was going to say trivial example but it actually isn't trivial when you when you take it into you start thinking about it, but I, I remember having a discussion with one pastor who was, and this is in a, a British context, who was saying that real real men should learn how to play rugby. Yeah. And that that's a good thing, you know, that's a, he was using that as a kind of an, as, as being emblematic of, of a real biblical man. And I'm, I pushed back on it and said, well, what if you just are constitutionally uncoordinated? Mm-hmm. Um, put myself somewhere near that category. And he said, well, you just need to be taught. I said, well, what if you have a disability? Um, you, you're investing a lot. I mean, rugby didn't exist before, you know, 250 years ago, however long it was. Jesus never played rugby. It, it seems a very arbitrary thing to sort of make as your emblem of, of being a biblical man. Now, it can be one healthy expression. There can be lots about, you know, a lot of people have said that there's there's much in team sports that can build the very kind of character traits you'd want young men to have in terms of teamwork and, and discipline and so forth. But that's different to saying all men must, and then then highlighting a very specific skill. Um, so I, th- I think the Bible gives us a wider range of, of what it can look like to be a, a godly man or a godly woman than our culture tends to, and sadly that our church tends to. Um, another friend I remember telling me that one of uh, one of the things he would dread at his church each year was the annual church picnic because he said the same thing would happen each year. Everyone would sit and have lunch together. Then after lunch, the guys would play softball and the women would do craft. Mm. And he was a guy who just couldn't throw a ball to to save his life. Mm. 
So he would go and do craft with the women, and then they would all be saying, why are you out here? Why are you here and not out there with the guys? And it left him very confused about his own sense of being a man. And this is a, this is a godly guy um, who is pursuing Christ, who is manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. And I just think that in those kinds of instances, churches are creating problems we don't need to have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's good to have single-sex environments, but not to build those around somewhat arbitrary, particularly cultural traits of, about what a man or a woman is into. I know plenty of women who hate craft. I know a lot of men who are, are not particularly sporty. And so it's doing them a disservice if we kind of make those things benchmarks of being a real man or a real woman. There's enough good reasons to be confused about our you know, levels of masculinity and femininity without the church adding unnecessary reasons for, for confusion and pain. Oh, yeah. And I could not agree more. And then you just think of this conversation we're having right now, the, the example you just gave, and then thinking about, you know, my mind's going to teenagers and just thinking yeah. how subtly they pick up these, you know, cultural stereotypes that kind of go in, into the church. And you just think of, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, the adult mind can process this a little more easily, but you think of the teenage mind trying to process and, you know, in the midst of puberty, in the midst of, as you bring up in your book, and we know the, the reality of gender dysphoria, um, just yeah. how this can complicate that issue. Um, and, and so for, for Christians to, to be aware and to think, okay, ways in which, okay, the culture is shaping our views on this, and we've got to be cautious of how we even, like you said, a church picnic, um, you know, maybe even making some kind of a statement, uh, you know, whether it's in the church bulletin or whatever, um, you know, that uh, th- this isn't just for the men. It can be, hey, women join us in yeah. playing softball, men join us in crafts, you know, something along those lines. Um, but no, that's a yeah important thing to, to be discussing, just the ways in which the church can buy into those cultural stereotypes. Um, Sam, I, I would assume that whenever uh, the, the topic of our bodies is brought up, uh, my assumption is that many a Christian that their knee-jerk thoughts or their you know knee-jerk response tends towards the negative. Um, that as we bring up this topic, I would just assume you know shame and guilt come to the surface. And so I'd love to just kind of first off, would you agree with that statement? And then if so, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think we tend towards negativity whenever just the, the topic of the body is brought up? I, I very much agree with it. And I think there are, there are multiple reasons, um, both theological and experiential. Um, you know, theologically, the, the Bible often uses the flesh as shorthand for, for our sinful desires and, and that kind of thing. So we're, we're auto, I mean, that's not the only thing the Bible says about our bodies, but because that is one of those kind of shorthand um, pieces of terminology that that again can give us a sense that oh, the body is just negative and we, we can miss then some of the positive or even neutral things that the bible says um but i think as well deeper than that you know this this body is is you know in first corinthians 15 paul contrasts the body we have now with the body that we will be raised with and he talks about the body now being sown in shame and dishonor and those sorts of things um all of our bodies have been a vehicle for sin and so there's there's understandably going to be shame about what we've done with our bodies and what 
in some cases, what other people have done to our bodies, um, both sins that we have committed and sins that have been sinned against us, um, can leave people feeling deep levels of shame about their bodies. Um, I remember talking to one couple who were preparing for marriage and because the husband had sinned in various sexual ways before marriage, he, he was saying, how can I, he, he found it very hard to have a positive view of sex within marriage because just the whole business of sexual intimacy had become so tainted in his mind by his own experience of sin. Um, or you think of abuse victims who, I think of one guy I know who was who was molested as a, as a teenager and it says it, it left him feeling that his body was, was dirty mm. um, and that somehow this is a reflection of who he was rather than a, a reflection of who his abuser was. Um, and there's, you know, there's a whole myriad of, of other experiences, more intense, less intense than those. But um, there's a lot of reasons to be ashamed of our bodies. Um, and you add that to that, the sort of the media we're exposed to and the shame we can then feel about our appearance and not being whatever the, the kind of cultural standard seems to be of male or female attractiveness or body shape. And again, it can re reinforce a lot of that kind mm -hmm. of sense of shame. Yeah. And, and like you say, I mean, there is a massive spectrum there of just, you know, deep, serious shame and guilt over, I mean, the example of just, yeah, molestation and, and issues related to that. And then all the way to the other end of the spectrum, still serious, not trying to minimize in, in any ways, but um, just thinking of, you know, how inundated we are with pictures now, I mean, through mm. social media. And so that just feeds this kind of negative image of, of the body. And so I, I like you, you, you know, begin, I think, giving a, a corrective uh, to the, the reader by challenging the reader to be grateful for their body and thinking about the intricacies of all that God has done to create the human body. And you say, you know, not to give thanks is to forget the goodness of God. And so uh, just to have that appreciation for our body and to not have that kind of knee jerk towards the shame and guilt. And again, there are complexities and nuances that need to mm. take place there as we're dealing with certain people who might have, you know, some serious trauma they've been through. But just asking you the question, how, how have you sought to kind of foster this mindset in your, in your own life um, to, to be more grateful um, for the body that God has created? Maybe some practical advice for us there. Yeah, it, it's been challenging to me um, for the very same reasons. It's challenging to everyone. Um, lots of things about my own body I don't particularly like and at times have been teased about or bullied about. Um, and those things can leave a deep impression. Um, so it's interesting studying this. I wasn't expecting this to sort of be, as I was working on it, something that would be, this is going to sound awful, but not that it wouldn't have an impact on me, but I wasn't thinking this, I wasn't writing this book because I was feeling driven by an acute existential kind of need to sort of figure it out for myself, but found myself actually being quite profoundly affected along the way. And one of those things is, you know, we, we're used to David's language of being fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we rightly employ that in the pro-life debate. But I think we sometimes forget that it, it extends in significance beyond our, our birth. And so it's it's been interesting. One of the things I've tried to do is to think, okay, however I might be feeling about myself, I need to thank God for what I see in the mirror in the morning. Um because David says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Um, it's not just a, a mere data point. It, it's meant to be a an impetus to worship God, which is why I think Thanksgiving for our bodies is is going to be a, a key part of our response to our physical reality. Um, it, it won't be our only response. It won't be our only feeling or attitude, but it, it needs to be a significant part of how we respond to the, the physical existence God has given us, I think, is, is to thank God for the whatever it is we see before us in a mirror, however that is or is not received by other people and however we're tempted to, to sort of think about it. Um, our embodiedness is is a gift from God. Um, there wasn't some other way he wanted us to exist apart from or separate to our bodies. This is this is how he's designed us to, to be. Hmm. No, that's so good. I, I can remember actually, as you're saying all that, a thought came to mind from a friend of mine who's um, a surgeon. And he says that sometimes you'll just find him if you were to sneak up on him, just kind of holding his hand up in the air and just kind of wiggling his fingers around. And he said that he was just enamored with all that, that all that's behind the scenes there to make that a possibility yeah. from the, the ligaments, the bones, the muscles, all of it. And he said, he's just fascinated. And I just thought that was so interesting um, for, you know, a doctor to kind of be aware of the quote unquote behind the scenes in the human hand and to just, you know, pause and, and, and worship and uh, be in mm. awe of the creator behind that. So um, that's so good. And that, that does need to be just a knee jerk of the, of the believer. It's just to, to think about um, how that displays our creator's glory. Yeah. Um, something you bring up. And as we're talking about, I guess this works as a good segue of just being grateful for our bodies is uh, the thought of the stewardship of the bodies that God has given us. Um, and I'd love to kind of maybe direct this towards um, teenagers a little bit more. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a father of five and we try to encourage our children um, to, you know, steward their body. And uh, um, even as our children get older, think about, okay, what we're putting into the body. I know you've got a little mm. section where you talk about food and um, the, the good gift that it is. And um, also I was speaking with a friend of mine who uh, is in student ministry as well. And he's just bringing up the, the reality that teens these days are so aware of you know, their caloric intake, their, their mm. diet, the protein. I mean, especially those who are in athletics. Um, so how, how can we help, you know, specifically, and this doesn't just have to be to teens, but parents discipling teens in this to steward their bodies, to, to, you know, mm. um, exercise, to watch what they eat without going too far over and kind of, and no pun intended here, but, you know, feeding a negative image yeah. of, of the body, uh, just some thoughts there. Yeah, it's it's so significant, and I think those are the two two mistakes. I think we we most often fall into one is to sort of neglect any kind of thought of stewardship and to think it's it's not a spiritual issue. All that matters is my faith and evangelism. Um, and I've I've come from a Christian background where I think we've largely been guilty of that kind of mindset. Um, and it can be quite cre sort of creation denying in a way. Um, so we do need to, to take stewardship seriously. Um, the, the Bible references that so many times. I, I used to, not being a, an athletic type, I used to take the, the passage in Timothy about, you know, physical training being of some value, but of godliness being of ultimate value. I used to use that as a sort of pushback against my 
slightly athletically obsessed friends, mm -hmm. ignoring the fact that Paul still does say that physical training is of some value. So it, it is good to have some physical training. Paul talks about disciplining his body in 1 Corinthians 9. Um, so we do need to steward our, our bodies well, particularly when we remember that they, they belong to Christ now. Uh, we're not owners of our flesh. We are stewards of them um, or stewards of it. And when you steward something, it increases the sense of responsibility you should feel. Um, if, if you give me, if, you know, I've got my Bible sat on my table here. I care about my Bible. I, I try not to lose it. But if it was someone else's Bible and they'd, they'd given it to me to look after, I'd be so much more conscious of not wanting to damage it or lose it or anything like that. And that's how we should feel about our bodies. We are stewards of them. Um, but at the same time, stewardship is, is not just becoming sort of overly fussy about physical health um, because we, we are meant as part of our stewardship we're meant to enjoy the good gifts of creation we're meant to enjoy food um, it, something has gone wrong spiritually if we're thinking of food only in terms of of calories and nutrients and and those sorts of things it is meant to be enjoyed um, with appropriate moderation so there are days when, when it's right to feast um, and there are days when it's right to fast and there are days when we need to be disciplined in what we eat and there are days when you you want to kind of have a you know enjoy all the unhealthy stuff because you're celebrating thanksgiving or whatever it might be so there's a sort of biblical healthy balance i think to be found there um between and i, I see i see both of these things happening a lot in the christian world those who give very little thought to their their self-control and even even to the possibility of, of their being driven by greed um and at the same time a lot of other people who are almost frightened of enjoying food um because it may not be the, the most optimally healthy thing at any given moment to be eating um i think broadly speaking there's a there's a generational difference with those two errors i think younger people today are more likely as you intimated to be slightly more health conscious than than older generations um and so we just need to make sure we're remembering both the importance of stewardship the importance of, of preserving long-term health along with the very significant injunction to enjoy the things of creation and if we start to hold those things in disdain we're straying into some very serious theological error so we have to hold in our heads at the same time distinct truths and responsibilities and we're often tempted to think one cancels out the other and we need we need both mm -hmm. yeah and and i love that you uh, you know bring up uh, i mean like you just said um food is to be received with pleasure i, I mean the, the the god could have given us um oatmeal and that's it for every single meal for every day of our lives but he gives us so many different tastes and textures to to enjoy and it's just it's fascinating to me because um we typically eat every day of our lives that it's, you know, yeah. three square meals a day and it's not discussed as much in the church. And it's, it's an awkward kind of taboo subject to enter into. But it shouldn't be. I mean, if you think about how much of the Bible actually talks about eating, um, it, it comes up a lot um, in the new Testament. It's theologically significant who we eat with. There are times when it's right not to eat. There are times when it's right to not eat with certain people. There are times when it's, good to be sort of thinking 
about what you're eating with other people and all those sorts of things are, are spiritually significant and loaded. So I think it's, it is a significant oversight if we think that's a, a sort of overly fussy thing to be thinking about because it's there in the New Testament on many, many kind of places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Sam, I know we're going to be wrapping up before too long, but, but something you brought up that was just so um, interesting to me, it was really, I mean, talking about uh, appropriate touch and the importance of just, um, you know, and you, you, you talk about some of the um, online companies and I can't remember exactly uh, the, the titles of them, but, you know, getting paying for someone to come and just cuddle with you. And yeah. you talk about being touch deprived. And I think you said you stumbled upon a phrase, skin hunger. And you said how, you know, this is something taking place in the culture. And we as Christians need to be aware that there are those. I think you might give the examples of those who are widowed, those who are elderly, um, who are deprived of physical touch. And uh, again, you, you quote someone who says, you know, we're sex obsessed as a culture, but we're touch deprived. That we think, you know, touch is so connected to sex that there's kind of no distinguishing, you know, between the two, but mm. that there is an appropriate touch there. So I'd love for you just to, to speak on that briefly. That is just fascinating to me. Yeah. Likewise, it, it was something I hadn't thought about before, before working on this. Um, and again, it, some of this came out of pastoral experience, uh, realizing that there are one or two um, older ladies in our church who, whose family live in other parts of the country and who, who don't sort of have that regular um, familial hug and thinking actually some of these saints are not being not experiencing physical touch at all and so you know when Paul says treat older women as mothers I think you know it's it's appropriate to a hug or a kiss on the cheek or something like that um, and the church should be a place where there is a appropriate touch. It, it, you know, we're very mindful of the of the need to avoid inappropriate trust um, touch. Um, but I think one of the dangers we're we're facing today is because touch has become so sexualized, we don't want any physical contact. And the New Testament actually commands it. I mean, Paul says, "Greet one another with a holy kiss five times." Um, mm. And whilst there's a, an appropriate sort of, well, you know, kissing was the standard greeting in, in the ancient world, even between men, and we're not in the same culture, I think the point still stands that we need to be expressing in some culturally appropriate physical way the familial bonds that we share in Christ. Um, it shouldn't be the case that the, the single or the widowed um, are are not experiencing any kind of appropriate and healthy physical touch um and that you know that the skin hunger stuff seems to show that there is a there is a sort of psychological impact that comes from not receiving healthy touch over a long period of time and you know that when i first found out about that whole people hiring huggers obviously this was pre-covid as well i it all seemed very bizarre, and but it sort of made me think again. Cultures trying in in bizarre ways to find and to do something that the church is called to do in very healthy ways. Mm -hmm. um, so, whilst being mindful of differing people's sensitivities to touch in a post-COVID world, and also um, in a culture where we're very, very aware of 
physical abuse and that kind of stuff, we still nevertheless need to be encouraging appropriate kinds of touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, again, one of the many issues you raise in your book that's just very insightful. And I feel like we're just kind of digging in, but there's so much that you raise in this book that's just helpful um, for, for believers to be thinking about. Um, and so, Sam, as, as we close this out, I would love for you just to kind of think about, okay, if you were um, in a room filled with teenagers and you were giving a talk on the body, which is not intimidating at all to picture that. Um, <laughs> what, what, I was I was last week actually doing that very thing. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what is just kind of one thing you would like to, one truth you would like to, to be sure students hear about, you know, a proper theology of the body? Yeah, there's there's a lot to say. Um, as I said, I was in that situation just last week, speaking at a uh, a Christian boarding school chapel, and I had twenty minutes, twenty five minutes, and I thought actually the key thing I wanted them to know was was First Corinthians six. You know, you are not your own; you were bought at a price. Glorify God with your body. Just that, just the the kind of implication of that that if we belong to jesus and the only person our body has to please is jesus because there's a lot of other (laughs) a lot of other places young people are being trained to sort of you know i've got to please my peer group or my culture or my family or whatever it is that we're being given everyone's following someone when it comes to our bodies and jesus is just such a far kinder master uh, to be under when it comes to this. All of us are going to be mastered by someone. Um, so just for, for, for young people to know that that liberation of thinking, my body today, whatever it looks like, whatever shape it is, however I feel about it, however comfortable I am with it, that very body today can be glorifying to God by being used in his service. And that that will make our bodies pleasing to him. Um, I, I just think I've, I've needed to hear that. And I suspect many of our young people do as well. Absolutely. That's a, that's a good word uh, to end on. Just to remind our listeners, uh, the book is What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves. It's available through Crossway. You can pick it up at Amazon and in any other place. Uh, Sam, really appreciate you writing this book. It's a helpful resource for the church. I deeply uh, prevalent uh, with all that's going on in our culture right now. And thank you for taking the time today to come on the podcast. Well, thank you for that. And it's a, a joy to be with you today. Thanks for having me. 